The reality in America is that millions don't speak English or English is not their first language. The Health and Human Services Department studied its own efforts to make information and services available to non-English speakers as part of compliance with the Biden administration's Executive Order 13985 on racial equity. Here with what it found, the director of HHS's Office for Civil Rights, Melanie Fontes Rayner. Ms. Fontes Rayner, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. What were you seeking to find out? Was it more what HHS is doing to make sure that you are there with the languages people need online and so forth? Or was it measuring access externally for people to don't speak English or have limited English ability? We have a lot of data that shows there's a lack of meaningful language access in this country and that that can lead to inequitable access to Um, the programs and services we run at the Department of Health and Human Services. We know that 21.5% of people in the United States speak a language other than English at home, and of those, 8.2% speak English less than very well, and therefore would meet the department's definition of limited English proficiency. If you don't know what's being said, if you can't communicate with your provider, um, how are you supposed to establish that patient provider trust, understand the severity of what's happening to you, what is needed to make you better, amongst other things, right? Like bills, um, insurance, other things that are, you know, in the healthcare space can be jargony and, you know, are hard to understand even if you don't have a limited English proficiency. Um, So the report we put out summarizes the the department's progress um, that we've made on improving this provision of um, meaningful language access and assistance to language assistant services for persons with limited English proficiency and identifies steps to strengthen this work across HHS. Of note, this report was translated into English, Spanish, Chinese, and traditional Chinese, which is something the department is trying to do more of. Question on those to whom these provisions apply is not simply HHS itself, but HHS funds many of the third-party providers of health care and other services throughout the country to the tune of trillions, literally. And so those organizations also have to have language access because Absolutely. they are ultimately federally funded. Fair to yeah, say? Yeah, it is both the services we fund and the services conducted by us, right, which is a pretty broad swath of programs and services. Yeah, because if you look at, say, Medicare, that's probably two-thirds or three-fourths of the medical establishment. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a hospital in the United States that doesn't accept Medicare. This work was dormant for a long time. The department hadn't really done anything since 2016. The previous administration dismantled the HHS Language Access Steering Committee. So we've recently relaunched that. That's run by our office. It's senior leaders across all of HHS. There's representation from every single part of HHS. And we're working to update and refresh language access plans, Some of the plans, as noted in the report, are 10 years old, but they exist, and then we're sort of re-emphasizing them, and we're working through updating the new plans within the next year. This is like the entry point into the healthcare system. Sure. You don't don't know what's happening. How how the heck are you supposed to engage and do patient-centered care, all the things that are supposed to be better and help your health outcomes and be for for you? How are you supposed to engage in that? What was the Um, methodology for the analysis that you did? Because other departments may want to say, hey, you know, we'd like to have better language access to what we're doing. We examined the 25 plans submitted by every single HHS operating and staff divisions, including their provisions for areas of in-language website, listserv, and public outreach content, telephonic interpreter services, and availability of program and benefit information in other languages, as well as funding for recipients to provide language access services. So we looked at that across the entirety of the department 
we assess and you'll find in the report areas where, you know, we need improvement. And we're working on now, we've again identified that some of these plans are, are from 2013, the last time the department did this, which is, you know, 10 years ago, working to update those and refresh those. And I would say a big part of that that will be helpful is the rule that my office implements for the department, Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. This is a, a regulation that's non-discrimination in health programs and activities on many bases, including race, which could be limited English proficiency. And so this rule, again, was um, taken down in the previous administration. And so now we're working to update that. This will better align the rule under the Affordable Care Act with recent developments in civil rights case law under Title VI and Section 504 to better address these issues of discrimination. So covered entities, um, whether it's HHS itself or a grant or service, or like you said, a hospital, Medicare, Medicaid, that they will have notice for how the department is going to be enforcing the law and what kinds of steps they need to be taking here to improve. Things like having a coordinator, things like training your staff, right? Like all of those are things that we do in other civil rights laws that some of those efforts were scaled back here. We're speaking with Melanie fontes Rayner. She's director of the Office for Civil Rights at the Health and Human Services Department. How granular does this get? Because in some areas of the country, you could have 15 different languages in a six-block area. And also, what about the financial burden on small recipients, small health care providers who nevertheless might be in Medicare, Medicaid, and so on, to, to have interpreters and to change their, if they have websites, or documentation, I guess written documentation. People have to sign when they go to a medical facility. There's a lot to it as a burden. And how does that balance? Yeah. So part of that is the work that we're doing with the Section 1557 um, rule. So we issued a proposed rule last fall and we received 85,000 comments. So it was quite popular. If we want to spin it positive, we're looking at those. We're working to finalize that rule as quickly as possible. Um, but in that rule, we address some of these questions, right? We ask the question whether the current standard of the, the top 15 or so languages is enough, or as you're noting, right, there are like places in the United States that are geographically diverse. There are places, you know, cities and counties where, you know, Los Angeles County, right, if I, if we're to look at an assessment of languages there, 15 is probably not enough, right, because there is so many different communities there. Um, and, and how do we work with that, both within the standards that exist within Medicaid and Medicare, but also make sure we're being inclusive enough. And so that's one of the things we're contemplating in this final rule. And we got a lot of comments from all the major medical associations, health insurance companies, et cetera. Um, so something that we'll be working on. And then also, absolutely, the cost burden is, is, a, is a real thing. And that's why in the proposed rule, we, in the past, the department had asked for covered entities, whether it's a health insurance company or a provider or a hospital of a certain size, to do a lot of this work themselves. But in our proposed rule this past year, we actually are providing model notices. We're proposing providing model notices in translated um, languages that will help lift some of the financial burden onto covered entities and also provide some of these services for them, which is a step that was proposed in the proposed rule and that we got a bunch of comments on it. I think a lot of positive comments from covered entities that that is you know, helpful and in, in trying to lift that burden. I think we're also trying to take other steps across the department, right? We have a language access coordinator we're putting into place, whether we can co-locate some resources across the department for smaller agencies. But I think all of those are things that will help the community because they'll show, A, it's a priority, not an afterthought, and B, the department is providing resources for covered entities around the country, knowing that not every hospital is giant and it has sure. a lot of resources. And do you sense that there might be a technological help 
for a lot of this translation challenge. If you have to change your website or change documentation, there are tools now, software tools, artificial intelligence, that do a lot better job of translating than they did, say, five or ten years ago. Is that something you envision people maybe using? That's definitely something we got comments on in our proposed rule. Some were saying, hey, use artificial intelligence. It's great. Some also were saying, absolutely not. Don't use artificial intelligence because I think, as we all know, Google Translate, for example, doesn't always get the verbiage right. And sometimes there are cultural um, differences in how we use words, and there might be differences in how something is phrased. And that might mean that someone is not getting all of the information necessary. And so I think Absolutely. There has been advancements in the space. And I think we want to tread that line carefully to make sure that we're not just saying, okay, fine. You know, you don't have to have anyone on staff that can translate. You don't have to have translation services. You can just use artificial intelligence. That's absolutely not what we're saying, but it is certainly something we're contemplating to figure out where is the line there to make sure that this isn't a substitute for, you know, meaningful work in this space to provide meaningful access to care. And what is the status of the rule now? Is it still in the proposed stage when are comments finalized and what's your plan for getting the rule to the final point? Comments period closed last October of 2022. So we are working on finalizing the rule. And um, I believe the Unified Reg agenda has it coming out in this fall of 2023, which is our goal. And by the way, of those 85,000 comments, were they auto-generated or did you get some real variety in the comments <laughs> that you got? I, I, you know, I think typically with big rules like 1557, where people have some really strong viewpoints, we typically get a mixed bag. We got a number of large associations like AHIP and AMA and AHA who weighed in and gave very thoughtful comments. Um, But certainly, you know, on a civil rights rule, you're going to get letter writing campaigns where you get a lot of pro forma letters where people are just signing their names and telling you why you got it wrong or why you got it right. And I certainly we saw a lot of that, too. I can't say whether or not they're AI generated, but they are certainly the same. But yes, it's not a plebiscite anyway with a rule. It's really you're supposed to evaluate them on their face value. And if 85,000 say the same, you know, 80,000 say the same thing, that can kind kind of count as one versus the 5,000 that said something else. I mean, we read every single comment, right, regardless of they say the same or not. Like our staff is actually absolutely reading every single comment because, you know, we want to make sure we're assessing this and, and getting the sense from the public of what we've done here. And so, you know, I think that's just part of I think that's always been part of this work. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll see how that comes out in the fall. Melanie fontes Rayner is director of the Office for Civil Rights at the Health and Human Services Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way that's sort of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.